I know. It's just a stutter step. How's everybody doing? Good. Good. We are together again on a Saturday morning, a little earlier than normal, but I'm feeling good. I'm feeling... I've been listening to Christine and the Queens. So good. She's amazing. I know. Did you go to the show? No, I. but I felt like I was there based on Instagram, and I Dude, was on everyone's Halloween. Do you, do you, have you heard of Christine and the Queens? No. She, so Justin is going to hear this, and he's going to smile, because uh, we're Michael Jackson guys. She channels Michael Jackson better than anybody since Michael Jackson. Is that yes. a hot take? Or is I, would, that... I would agree with that, yeah. So wow. I was listening to her the whole way over here, so I'm fired up this morning. That's why wh- where this came from. But uh, she, after the show in L.A., she did Colbert, mm. and which, like, whoa. She went this to that, and her Colbert performance was, like, mesmerizing. She's like a French pop electronic artist. But she dances extremely well, and she has this kind of whole choreographed bit, which wow. is amazing. Yeah, it's, sounds it's, right up my alley. It's true entertainment, and she has a she has a really good voice too. Like in, in her yeah. her lyrics, I listen to the French version because they it's beautiful. She does every track. She, her her album is the A side is all English, and then the B side is the same side the same songs but all in French. So anyway, Christine and the Queens has got me fired up this morning. Um, how you doing? How's the uh, how's the engagement? One week of engagement been? Still on our finger. I think we're doing good. <laughs> okay. I think we're two weeks in. Uh, my birthday's tomorrow, so I'm just it is grappling with the idea of turning 36 right now. Okay. But, uh, Who does right. that make you? What sign are you then? Well, I'm a Scorpio. Aren't we all water signs? I'm a Sagittarius. I'm December. I turned 30 in December. That's why you keep us all together here. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, you're the the actual archer, so you see the target and hit it. And we're all water signs. Chilling. The ultimate target is David Chase Naya. So <laughs> let's just keep going. Well, say we had a contact and say we reached out to him and you got rejected now. Would you be able to carry on? And if- yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, uh, another beautiful thing I heard this week was, in, especially in this business, the fact that you hear no's is actually a good thing. Because some people don't even get to the state where they're getting no's. Like I bid on a really big project for a venture capital company and I was on the short list. They were, they were deciding between me and another company and they picked the other company. But that in and of itself is like a fucking awesome thing because you got to know as opposed to nothing. Yeah. And so when I, when the person told me that I was like, cause I was kind of crapped out, but they were like, no, that's actually great because you're going to get nine no's before you get one yes. If he says no, at least he responded. See, I'm, I'm, if he says no, that doesn't mean I'm not going to keep asking him over and over again. Yeah. I've done that with a director and, and I kept bothering him to like, I like stalked his house and he finally said yes. And there you go. So we'll so be you, dropping off TVs and stuff to you, David Chase's house. You don't know this, but before I talked to John, I messaged you privately about Pata Bing. And, and I was just like, yeah. Naya never responded. Yeah. So like, and here we are. Ten episodes in. No doesn't mean no. No doesn't mean no. No just means, like, go through John. (laughs) (laughs) No no just means talk to John and then talk to Naya. We'll gift Um, him stuff. Persistence is a virtue. Yeah. But no, if he, look, even if he gave us, I think it would be a success for us if he didn't want to be interviewed on air, but he came to the studio and sat down with us for 30 minutes and just kind of like we just shot the shit, that would be a win. And we got pictures. Yeah, I think you just will come on and not want to talk about Sopranos, which I think would be the funniest thing ever. Yeah, well, we would talk about the many saints, many saints of, of Newark. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then we would find ways to segue it into Tony. God damn. Okay? All right. So, today, um, uh, I'm happy 
because we're talking about episode six of season two, The Happy Wanderer. The air date was February 20th, 2000. A couple of little snippets of information here. James Gandolfini won his first Emmy Award for his performance in this episode. Was there a scene for you in this episode that was the clincher? I have one. I'm just... I think there were a few, honestly. I thought the conversation with Junior was really good. And then the conversation with Richie was good. And then when they're counting their money of what they won in the executive game. I don't know. I just like Tony. Oh, uh, yeah. His, his yeah, non-speech a... in the executive game, the way yeah. he was so self-satisfied. I don't know. That was great. Every time he opens his mouth or, or doesn't, I, I mean, every, it's every just... episode would be an Emmy for yeah. you, right? Yeah. So for me, it was the moral high ground speech to Meadow. That was classic. That was good. I forgot about that one. And then Carmela kind of standing in the doorway like a statue. Yeah, that's enough. Powerful, powerful scene. You know what's interesting about that scene is all that comes from the story that you hear about uh, his father's uh, opinion of degenerate gamblers and how uh, how they got Satriels. And didn't they had to cut off somebody's finger? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so it's a was, generational experience. Totally. Well, that's what was so crazy about this episode for me where I was like, He's right. Like Tony's right. He he lost a bet, and he like I'm I, the bad guy. I agree with in this episode. Yeah, no, he 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 made a bet once yeah. and he lost. He made a bet twice, and w- and we'll get into it a little bit more. But Tony and uh, Richie handled it pretty well in the beginning. Like their first sort of like warnings to David were kind of like non mobby. Yeah, they were sort of like buds, which was interesting. So this episode was written by Frank Renzulli, and it was directed by John Patterson. HBO synopsis, David Scatino, the father of Meadow's friend Eric and the owner of a local sports store, gets on the bad sides of both Richie and Tony when he loses big in two poker games. Paying his respects at a funeral, Tony is forced to deal with the presence of Livia. Right off the bat, it was interesting that they mentioned the funeral that was basically like a throwaway part of the story in the show synopsis. The title is The Happy Wanderer. Do either of you guys know any happy wanderers in your personal lives? Do they exist? Aren't we all? In our hearts, maybe, but... Depends on the day of the week. Do you know anybody that walks around whistling Billy Joel songs? Well, do you guys know the, that the, what about, like, the original song, the song? It's like an old war song. It was originally in German, right? Mm-hmm. And it was, like, after, shortly after World War II which is bizarre to me because it's very like, yeah, with my backpack on my back. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a very strange song. I think it was sung by Frankie Yankovic, like Weird Al Yankovic. Any relation? No relation, which is the first question that I had. But they have collaborated together. But it makes sense that playing an accordion after the world, post-war era, sort of like joy, like the world is going to be like a good and happy place. Have you ever sang that song in the shower? No, no. no. I'm sure you would crush it. <laughs> I sing Billy Joel. I guess I, I, I am a, a happy I, wonder. I have a question. You and I would probably sound better than we do now if we sung in the shower. I but sound when amazing. You sing in the shower, night? Does it sound that much better? Does it improve like a professional singer? It does because the heat and the steam. Mm. Like you always want. That's where I warm up sometimes because the anything warm like opens your your voice and vocal cords. Do you guys shower? This is really off topic. I've noticed men shower facing the shower. And women shower with their backs to it. Do you guys shower forward I'm or a, back? I'm a back. I'm a back, too. Sometimes so I have my face. phone. Interesting. And then I'll turn. So uh, Soprano's autopsy aptly 
touched on the title, The Happy Wanderer, uh, right at the beginning where he puts it, he aptly puts it, nobody's happy in this episode. So there's this great bit of irony to, to this title and the, and the episode that we're going to talk about. Let's jump right into um, David Scatino. A couple of key moments to set everything up. He's Tony's friend from high school. I think we figured that out. He wants in on Tony's executive game. Tony tries to talk him off a ledge, but then he relents. And the first kind of like thing I want to toss at you guys is why didn't he hold his ground? Why did he relent? He knew that this would end badly. He has to know this would end badly. Why did he ultimately let him in the game? I think, I mean, there's a pivotal moment for me where he's outside, David outside the executive game, and he says, you don't have to tell me about business. And Tony pauses because I think for some reason he realizes like, oh shit, he has this entire sporting story. You're right. I can completely drain this guy. Like, and for the first times he's like, you don't have enough. Like, this isn't for you. Like, you're just, and I don't even think it was, he's like worried about him as a friend. I just don't think he thinks he's like up on the same level to compete or like have the money. And then when he says that line, he pauses and then he says, okay, you can come in. So to me, he realizes that like he could do it. Like your store will be mine. Mm -hmm. He sees like an opportunity in it. I think that's how you would access a game like this is you need to know somebody on that side. And when you're a civilian that's towing the line between the two, you get a very clear line of distinction. You're not one of us, but you're a friend of ours, and we'll treat you as such until you cross the line and don't handle your your business professionally. But I I think there maybe was a slow play for Tony that he wanted, he saw an opportunity and wanted to advise against it, but... Cause how, how often do you, like, push for something and then stop it, but, like, you really want it to happen? Like, he, if he had yeah, just said, no, okay. You, Naya, you articulated it beautifully. I, I, it makes sense now. Like, he, even Artie. Like, yeah, he was in, Artie, he was in Artie, Richie's Artie, game. Artie owns a restaurant. Yeah. And anybody that has business, anybody that has cash flow, they want to be able to tap into that. Mm-hmm. And in Richie's game, Artie and David were there. and But in the executive game, Artie wasn't. Yeah. Because Artie's smart and he knows Charmaine will have his balls on the menu. Yeah, there's this whole theme. So <clears throat> the theme that we're coming back to in this episode and we did with season one is this idea of the degenerate, emasculated gambler. And a lot of talk, a lot of uh, verbiage, even in the, the books that, 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 are, that are coming out about um, these men as all being emasculated. I don't think being a good husband is emasculating. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think Artie's effeminate, but there's, he gets lumped. He gets lumped into that world um, any thoughts on that? Like, I mean, on the hierarchy of emasculated men in the episode, in the, in the show, I would think that there are, there are other ones besides Artie. Artie's not one of the ones that I would look to. Yeah. Right? In, in the comparison from Tony, sure, I think everyone feels a little emasculated because they, Tony may have been a bully or in a little mini gang when he was in high school, but things really haven't changed. And then he's still become this... A mas- he's a man's man at the totally. moment. And Artie and David, to me, it's interesting because, you know, Artie doesn't really want to have the life. Like, he doesn't want to put money on the streets. But, he, you know, he'll go to a poker game. He'll go to the Bada Bing sometimes. But he knows the line of what's too far. And David, this is like you see a real addiction. Like, he's an actual gambler. Actual degenerate Yeah. Gambler. And it's—I actually looked up what it means to be, like, an actual gambler. Like, what happens, why you have that— thing and it's where they're what did it say for someone to become addicted to gambling their cogn- 
cognitions? What's this word? Cognitions. Cognitions or thought processes must become distorted to the point where their central truth eludes them. So he just keeps thinking everything, like everything shifts. That's why he keeps going back. That actually really nicely describes his behavior. He changes the subject. He goes, you know, he's in the hole big time. And he's like, how did things work out with Meadow at Bowdoin? Yeah. And Tony's like, what did you say? Well, also in the game with Vito, he says, do you, or even in the executive game, I forget who says it to him. He's like, do you want to admit you quit, you lost, and you like to pack in the lights? And he says, no. Yeah. So like he can't even admit that he lost. So one of our Instagram fans, we were talking about Artie and this whole idea of emasculation and this whole, you know, the YA Tittle Joe Namath reference that kind of like threw me like, what what is Tony doing there? And I'm just going to read what he wrote in one of the comments. And this is on the same subject that we're talking about. He has a spoiler in here, so I'm going to skip that part. But there's this idea that back in high school, Tony runs with the bad crowd and someone in his life said, and that Artie Bucco is the worst. Okay, it's a line from the show. Um, And I'm just, I'm quoting the comment here. We see Artie as kind of a joke as an adult, but he was a bit of a badass in high school. And with the exception of Tony, Artie seems to toughen up a little around his high school buddies. So the idea that this guy was making, and I actually liked it a lot, is that you see that scene in the beginning of the episode when Artie's in the mirror, they're in the bathroom and they're talking. And then Davy Scatino says something and Artie's face becomes somber and he kind of looks at himself in the mirror like I look at myself in the mirror on a Friday night when I'm staying at home with my kids watching a movie. <laughs> and it's because he has to put on that veneer, but in, in reality, like his, his heyday is over. It was also really cool that they were in a high school bathroom all together. Like it reminded yeah. me of when they were back in high school. So you just bring up memories. And David was a transfer student. I remember he says, like, remember when I transferred to you? So, and I went to a school, and I remember when the new kids would come in, they were always so much more interesting or, like, exotic. And I just think they were both jocks, except Artie. I don't think Artie played sports, in my opinion. So you don't see him as a badass with the earring that he's got going? You don't see him as, like, a high school? I think he's Italian, so they were all in the same kind of, like, crew. But, like, we knew that Tony was an athlete and— in high school, right. and I think uh, David never had the makings of a varsity athlete, though. <laughs> but I think David was too, because even when he goes to collect, he goes, "What do you think this is? The school bus again?" So it looked like David almost kind of bullied Tony a little in yeah. a way in high school. Well, David thought he could be like, "Hey, look, once upon a time we were equal," mm-hmm. but think he doesn't he hasn't registered that things have changed. God, high school is so miserable. You know, speaking of high school, um, I hated it. How crazy. Was it when Tony walks out, I just, I, it was such a beautiful scene to me when he walks out of the college counselor meeting, or I, it might have been the bathroom, but he looks to his left and then he looks to his right. He's always, he's always on alert, mm-hmm. even in a high school gym or in a high school, like evening college session, you always have this feeling that there's this tension. And if you see just minutes, be- moments before when he's taking a leak in the bathroom, he closes his eyes for a minute and I, I almost felt like when the door opens, he kind of like looks over his shoulder. Most of us don't like someone comes in and someone says something to you like, Hey John, you just kind of like know who they are. And you're like, Hey, what's up? But when some, when it opens for him, he immediately looks back at like, who is it? And I just felt for him because, you know, obviously we know the story and he's always checking until he's not, you know? Yeah. So it just, ah, it just got with me. But so a couple of other themes for this, David Scatino is just a different version of Vin McKazian. That was the first note that I made. Um, I see I see aspects of Vin McKazian. He's on the right side of the law, but I saw some parallels there. What did you guys think of his performance? I loved it. 
I mean, this uh, actor has been the badass in a number of noticeable movies like um, Terminator 2 and then even reprising that role in Wayne's World. So to have him play such a soft and vulnerable character is like a testament to the acting. Yeah. He's a T-1000. T-1000, yeah. That movie has not aged so well. Uh, special effects have not. Yeah. That used to be the coolest thing ever when he turned liquid. Yeah. I remember seeing that. Like, the liquid metal? It's never going to get any better than this. Yeah. Um, speaking of movies, Naya, did you ever get a chance to watch Castaway? I have not. So I was not able, I was not able to push you over the hump? I just feel like I know what's going to happen. He's going to grow a beard. I will. I promise I'm I kidding. will. I'm totally kidding. Um, <sighs> but I thought I, that thing I sent you with the... So good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna watch it. Uh, I didn't finish last week's episode, but oh, you ha- you have to. Do I, you end it with that as well? Well, so I'm not gonna tell you. It's a surprise. Every episode is a surprise. Well, for I you was guys there. Too. I just don't know yeah. how you ended the music. <laughs> um, but Helen Hunt's been in my mind lately more. For yeah, some, I've, I had like a dream that I went to her brownstone. I don't even know if she owns a brownstone. I'm sure. I feel like Helen Hunt and brownstone are like in the same sentence every time, and 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 rightfully so. Let's get her on the show. Yeah. So the final theme is that Tony's personal life and his professional life intersect big time in this episode. I had some symbolism. I don't know if they're reachy or not, but Tony's civilian friends getting too close to the fire and ultimately getting burned. This is not the first time or the last time that we're going to see this happen. And Tony knows this, like I just mentioned to you guys, by virtue of the fact that he tries to keep things separate, but ultimately he relents. And you kind of touched on this, Naya, but I just want to ask one one other follow-up question. Is being a creditor that intoxicating to him? Like having people owe him? Is that what it's all about for him? I mean, I think he takes pleasure when they've... Like, when you saw him outside the salon with with uh, Furio, like, he was happy in a way. I feel like he was like, haha, like, I need to get what's mine. But the whole process of dragging it out, like, collecting the things, like, even Richie, like, kid, you see me every week. Like, one short envelope, I know what this means. I think that is probably frustrating. It's like trying to get paid. Like, that's never fun to, like, keep emailing, like, where's my fucking money? I invoiced you two months ago. Good analogy. <laughs> is Tony a micromanager? In what sense? Does he get involved in the minutiae, or is he pretty good at letting people do their thing? I think at this point in his career, he's adjusting to the fact that he can't participate in everything. Uh, he's gotten rid of his lightning rod, and he has to be careful. He, he needs to have someone else do it for him. Fun fact about Robert Patrick, David Scatino. He's a member of an outlaw motorcycle club called the Booze Fighters. He was and also on Sons of Anarchy. He was? Yeah, and uh, his son in the show was also in that. So the reason I thought this was interesting, Naya, is because Alternate Thursday's Studio 1.0 in my neighbor was a motor- outlaw motorcycle club. That's... Oh, that's right. We, we left the building one night, and they were having a full-on party. Wow. It was... it was a meeting. Oh. Um, we are also introduced to Christine Scatino, who was played by Marissa Redanti. Love her. Any stuff on her? She's got a hot brother. Really? That we meet later. Oh, okay, gotcha. Okay, I thought you were talking in real life. Real life. Um, And then Eric Scatino, who is the son of the Scatinos, played by actor John Hensley, who is best known for his work on Nip Tuck. Nip Tuck, yes. Did you watch that show? I did, and that's why it's very hard for me to watch Eric Scatino. So you you have a sample size of his work. Oh, yes. How is he as an actor on he's that? He's great in Nip Tuck, and it's funny because he's much younger here. Yeah. And in Nip Tuck, he plays a very twisted, 
fucked up. Like, the character he plays is outrageous, and his arc is wild. So it's really interesting for him to play this, like, innocent kid who just gets, like, who's, like, trying to get into Bowdoin or wherever he's trying to go. See, and I enjoyed Nip Tuck, but I didn't like his character on Nip Tuck. And when I saw him on this, I was reminded, like, he's, like, the same kind of annoying son. Well, he has such a look, which is strange that they casted him for his son because Dave has such blue eyes. Or what's the actor's name? Robert Patrick. Yeah, his eyes are so blue, which to me was such a great casting because, like, it's the whole blue-eyed thing. Like, you're not really Italian if you've got blue eyes. Right. Like, Mickey blue eyes thing. Yeah. And his eyes are just so piercing. And Eric Scatino had really big brown eyes. Do you think that was a curious casting, given that his name is Scatino, but his eyes were that blue? No, because they're—I mean, I'm Italian and I've got green eyes. Yeah. So I think there are—and that's the thing. It's like I'm more northern Italian than than southern. So it's funny because— the lighter you are, the less Italian people say you are. And is that's why the South hate the North. Is Naples considered the North? Naples is considered the South. It is considered the South. And Furio later says, like, the North stick their nose up to the South. So where is the line? In the middle. like Is Rome North? Rome is, like, kind of right in the middle, I think. Maybe a little bit higher. I'm, I'm, geography for me is, like, not true. So this But is, Milan is North. Milan is North, yes. Okay. Yeah, that's, it's, like, up, up there by Switzerland. Um, notable music moments in the David Scatino portion of the show, the song Tequila Sunrise by the Eagles. Are you an Eagles fan? I am an Eagles fan. Are you an Eagles fan or are you a Don Henley fan? I'm a both. Both. What about you, John? I can dig it. You can dig it? Probably more Eagles, though. The song name has the word sun in it, and suns and sunshine references are all over the place in this episode. Autopsy touched on that as well. Is it a direct correlation with the name of the sh- of the episode, Happy Wanderer? Or is there something going on with the sun that I didn't see that you guys did? Um, I don't know. I mean, Sun and Moon is one of the more bearable numbers from Miss Saigon. The song that they sing, it's from that musical Miss Saigon. There's another reference right there that I yeah, didn't catch. Yeah, Sun and Moon, yeah. the song Eric and Meadow sing. So. Well, the irony is that nobody's feeling very sunny. Yeah. And the one who was... Light and dark. ...blew off a roof and died. <laughs> So, spoiler alert. <laughs> no, we're, 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 if you haven't watched the show yet, like, no, no, the, don't listen to our podcast. No, <laughs> the episode that we're the episode that we're talking about, the yeah. funeral they go to, is a happy wanderer who blew off his roof. Oh, you're talking about it, yeah. I'm talking well, about I this think roof. the sun. What you think I was talking about? Oh, I thought you were mentioning something else. Oh, um, no, no, we are living in the present, ladies and gentlemen. Speaking of uh, symbols, and just that brought that up in my head, uh, the wind. Yeah. Oh, the wind you, you love carries the wind. Him off. It's like another sign of death by mm-hmm. David Chase. You know, in your past life, if you believe in reincarnation, I think you were an Ojibwe tribesman. Yeah? Yeah. You caught the wind reference <laughs> in the beginning, and then we're going to see that Ojibwe saying that Tony gets in a future season. There's a lot of wind. And there's a lot of wind. And wind is meaningful to you. You keep mentioning it, so there's Follow something... the wind, listeners. Follow, Follow the, wind. the wind. Follow the yellow bear code. There's a great line in this particular portion of the show where David Scatino says... You know how many jackstraps I sold last week? Not enough for this game, okay? Forget it. It's a great line, but I just wanted to get some, if you guys have any commentary or thoughts on, like, why the choice of jockstraps, what's going on there. I thought just on the, the surface of, do you know how many jockstraps I sold this week? Meaning, business isn't that great, and I need to supply my income in, in a different way, which is this card game or, or gambling. Oh, I saw the opposite. I saw it as him flexing. I'm a businessman, 
and I sold a ton of jock straps this week. Let me in your game. I have the resources. Yeah, like the silliest of... thing in my store. I sold so fucking many. Right. <laughs> it's just a lot of too many too much balls for me in this episode. A little jock straps. I don't need it. I think when you're a guy, we're kind of immune to it. Like it doesn't it didn't get like it didn't get crude or unusual for me. Yeah, y'all like mm. smack each other's balls and stuff, don't you? More of the butts. Okay. Good game. None of the above for me. I just, <laughs> did I'm you play all, sports? I'm all about, I did, but I'm all about the fist bump. Oh, fist bump. Yeah, just you keep are it. a fist yeah. bumper. Okay, so questions. The expression, when Tony's taking a piss, I'm again, going right back to the balls, Naya, I'm sorry. Tony's taking a piss. He says to uh, David, he was kind of surprised that he was there. I figured you for the trotters. It's a line. I checked it on closed captioning. There's a couple of different things that it could mean. What did you guys think it means, or did you know outright what a trotter is? I thought it meant he has to shit. Because trotters is, when you are sick, it's like, oh, you got the trots. That's what I That's what I think it is. Like, you oh, s- I figured you for someone, like, who has the trots. Like, you got to go take a shit. No, that's one, one over my head. I just like the colloquialisms in the show, and a lot of them I don't know. And even after watching it so many times, I just took them for granted. Like, oh, okay, whatever. I can contextualize what it means. But now, because we're deep diving, I want to know what, what it means. I looked it up on Urban, and it could be a reference to him going to the strip club, or it could be running errands for your wife, like being a trotter for your spouse, like an emasculated man, which if you go with the theme of the show that Tony is basically emasculating Scatino and Artie, to their face in front of their children, then that's probably what it means. Like, instead of coming to this, I thought you'd be, like, buying groceries or something. Mm. Well, do you think he's really trying to emasculate them or he's just breaking balls? You're breaking balls. But still, there's some truth in it, though, right? Even if you're breaking balls and you're friends, there are digs, you know where your lines are with people, and if you keep touching those lines, eventually, you know, you get storm-offs like Artie Bucco, the sensitive chef. Who needs enemies when you have friends like mine? Because we are the worst to each other, and breaking balls like there is no line but the, i guess tony has it a different advantage a slang word in that same scene is he's like let's go see what the yo from bucknell has to say yeah and yo is like a slang term for like a young a young man but in a sense of like he's a crazy young man like when we were young my mom would be like oh he's such a yo like he's like a young crazy kid so, is it not a yuppie reference? No, it's more like he's a young a young guy who like doesn't know much and he's like weird. Like it was a YO. There's a funny guy on Instagram, this old Italian man who breaks down slang Italian terms I found every week. Send me the link. I will. It's hilarious. Yeah. But he never really actually says what it means. He just tells his own personal story about the word. It's hilarious. Yeah. Uh another expression. Dave says latrine lip to his son when Eric says star fucking, which is a fancy word for name dropping, basically. Have you ever heard that expression before? Latrine lip? I've heard it said by Carmela before, watch the latrine lip. So they okay. used it early, earlier where she's reprimanding Meadow. In your household and growing up around Italians, was that a term that was used in that No, cohort? that one's too fancy for my it's family's vocabulary. Okay. It does seem like it'd be something that Carmela got from her own mother. Mm-hmm. It's not something... Like the latrine, oh, I think of like a World War articulate. One, World War Two, yeah. when you had the latrine in the battle. But a latrine is a toilet, just so everybody right. Knows, it's a, right? it's a it's a fancy way to call somebody a potty mouth, mm-hmm. basically. Right. 
I can't believe I just said potty mouth. So Joe Namath and Y.A. Tittle, the reference, that was, they're both ex-quarterbacks. And then Tony analogizes them to Alan Alda and Phil Donahue. I even jumped on Reddit to see if there was any discussion about this as well. It's basically like, look, once you guys were tough guys and now you guys are pansies. But I'm, I'd be curious to know the Netflix backstory or the Many Saints of Newark backstory about Eric. It would be great if there was an Eric, Artie, and Tony scene in a locker room. David, you mean? Uh, David, David. David. Junior Varsity Blues. Oh my God, stop. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Meme? Meme? Did we just? It's been done. It's been done. So you're just, you just got them on the cycle from (laughs) here. Grapevine song. So good. So if you listen carefully to the song like Tony asks us to, which of course we all did, that's an actual lyric. Mm -hmm. Believe none of what you hear and half of what you see. Um, This song was sung by other people, but it's most famous from Marvin Gaye's rendition. um, And it was considered his commercial breakthrough. What's your favorite Marvin Gaye song? My favorite Marvin Gaye song is Distant Lover. Ooh, deep cut. Mm Mm-hmm. Nice. I love Marvin Gaye. Let's get it on. Yeah, that's a good one, too, obviously. I'm a Mercy, Mercy, Me guy. But I love how you went. um, So I mentioned this. I don't know if we were on mic when I said this, but I thought Richie handled the first warning to David pretty well, pretty low-key for Richie. Is he angling to smooth things over with Tony? Is this an early indication of that? Because he didn't crack heads when, when I, I just expected him to, like he did with uh, with. This Beansy. is the play, though, of loaning money and especially gambling. And Junior touches on it a little bit of the the, the creditor comparison and credit cards. You know, your father and me started that game over thirty years ago. We were talking one day about how the credit card companies, you know, they worked their angle. I didn't care what the fuck you bought as long as you didn't pay all at once. They juice you to death, and you thank them for letting you have a card. Mm. You've got to be juiced and pay all at once. That's a certain kind of player. That's why we call it the executive game. They want them to have a little juice. They want the interest. And I don't think he's being rough yet because he wants to feed into that. Like, oh, you're late? Okay, well, you know what happens next. Mm-hmm. And it's until interest you can't pay on the principle that he has the, the moral justice to be like, okay, well, now I can crack some skulls because you're behind. Do you agree with Tony's decision to screw Richie and basically put him last in line? Well, he says, what is, what's, if I don't act, what's it going to look like? Like, if I don't do, like, I'm the boss, I got to do something. And Richie's like, I guess you're, like, he, I feel like they both understand the pecking order of, that makes sense, even though it sucks for Richie. Well, he makes reference that he's, that people have been talking and they're not happy with the way he's handling things. And to your question, Vic, I I think Tony was looking out for himself first. But I do agree with you, Naya, that if, you know, what's he to do if he waffles to Richie and says, okay, well, we'll have him pay you back first and then he can pay me yeah, back. Yeah, I mean, just you got to pay bad. the executive game first. Yeah. Richie gave me all the NBA references I could ever ask for in this episode. In that particular scene, when they're in the funeral parlor, he says, I'm sorry about blowing up in your game. You had a line. What am I supposed to do with you? What? Back off and respect the title, you fucking jerk off. It's your ball. You make the rules. No, no. I don't make them. They've always been there. Uh, then he tells David in the in the sporting goods store, which I literally watched on. I made a little audio loop of it. I'm gonna try to see if I can do something creative. When Richie says stutter step, when he repeats David Scatino's so line good. back to him. I don't take this personally. But I don't want to see your face at any of my games until you're caught up. Come on, Rich, that's not necessary. Kid, 
You think I started this life 10 minutes ago? Guy hands you a light envelope. It's just the beginning. Nothing personal. Yeah, I know, but it's, it's just... I know. It's just a stutter step. Oh, I know. So good, the acting. And he, like, leans into the camera and... David Provost. A little bit of a saliva. A little bit of saliva. On his mouth, too, that was cool for emphasis. Th- these are the minutiae details that yeah. I actually obsess about. Was that direction or was that completely spontaneous? And if I'm, if I'm writing it, if David Chase is as obsessive as I think he is, he would say, I need a little bit of that, that little, a little lisp to come out of you. What do you think? I think that Richie Aprile. I for, always forget the actor's David name. David Proval. He is an amazing actor. And if you've ever been to, if you've ever seen a play, you literally, if you're in the first row, are covered in spit because actors project and they like, they you see spit flying in the air. So a part of me feels like it was just something that he did in his per- performance. It's beautiful. Yeah, I think the opposite maybe of what you're thinking, uh, that David Chase saw that and where they could have taken another take or used something else where it that wasn't there. He's like, no, this is gold. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. that's true. They probably did a couple of takes, yeah. Because it, it just, it makes it visceral. When mm-hmm. you see spit and you see it, like, and when he uses his fingers and he like does this little thing with his with his thumb and his pointer finger, it's like, come on, guy. Like, you're just I killing know. it. You're just killing it. He's and just that slaying. crescendo of that whole performance, like he's trying on glasses, he's yeah. just floating around, he's just yeah. waiting for him to show up and then he gets all the way and he pinches Eric Scatino's cheek. Yeah. He goes from, like, loving Uncle Richie to, like... It's just a stutter step. The first time I saw this, I didn't understand the gravity that David Scatino had of owing this money. No. And then I started to think about it more. I'm like, dude, you just are, like, 50 large out to two people you do not want to owe mm-hmm. money to. Which, which uh, Janice says is a small sum of money. Being in the whole 50000 maybe if you make 50000 or whatever, you can, you can talk about inflation or whatever, but I feel like if you're in the hole to somebody for 50000 or if you owe a debt of 50000 even in 2018 dollars, that's a significant amount of money. Especially, for, yeah, especially for someone who just has a normal business. Like right. if you're in the mob, you can get a quick, you can figure out how to make a quick buck quick. But even when he said he sold a lot of jock straps. Earlier in that conversation, he was saying the other stores like Nike hurt his business. So if we really probably think about it, his business isn't probably doing that well. No, and as we know, retail now is all but dead. Yeah. Um, John, you segued beautifully to the monies that were owed. Later, David goes to Artie for money for help, which is curious given their dynamic at the beginning of the show. Artie was kind of on the outs with him. Artie was kind of like, Artie was almost to me, I wrote down the note, repelled. He was a little repelled by David. But David is so oblivious, like Naya pointed out, like he's just, he's a degenerate, possessed gambler that he actually thinks that Artie would help him. So he goes to Artie to ask for money. Artie kind of, you know, tries to be the friend. But then once he hears the sum of 20000 uh, he decides he doesn't want to give it to David. Um, did Artie have the twenty k and he just didn't want to give it? Or could Artie have helped him? Yes. Yeah. Does Artie need a new roof or was that just bullshit? The oh, camp- that's bullshit. Bullshit. Okay. He came up with that on the fly? I thought it was pretty good on the fly. No? He's a bad liar. He's a bad liar? <laughs> yeah. I feel like 20K is a big ask, too. You know, like, to somebody that you're a casual friend with, I, I, again, it sh- maybe David, again, goes to his possession. He doesn't know what's going on. So why is he so clueless? What the fuck is going on with David Scatino? He's an addict. He's, he's an addict. He's got a problem. It's a, it's a, it's it's a, a problem. And to he me, needs, he he's like, to me, he was a happy wanderer and... Got, he's now like 
wants he's he's a he's a yeah he's just has a problem it's it's a weird addiction to have that perpetuates this crisis because say you get into drugs uh you lose all your money the answer is not to go do more drugs Mm -hmm. when you're gambling and he's in the hole obviously we see from the first game he's out eight g's to richie or something seven boxes the only way to solve that problem is to gamble more Mm -hmm. and that's a weird complex so vicious cycle and i I think when you were talking about um gambling addiction and stuff it's all about the highs and lows Mm -hmm. and and he i think david just really believed that he's just one good game away to getting out of this hole that he's probably done a ton of times you know you're losing some you're winning some and this time he just happens to be in a particular hole that he believes he can get out of because they think it's all about luck in some way like the luck will change but like the house always wins yes he was up in the executive game and he chose he chose to keep going again the prudent rational careful vic would have cashed out you know because it's not very often that you're up when you're up you usually what are are your thoughts on that would you take your winnings and walk or would you double down if you had won a big hand if i'm owing tony soprano Right. Or, or owing Richie all, at this point. All else equal. If it was just a fun night and fun weekend in Vegas with the boys, would you double down or would you take your winnings and go have a nice steak dinner? I think that's the difference between... So when I go to Vegas and I was taught by my parents who enjoy going to Vegas somewhat frequently, you bring the money and expect to lose it. And when you are up, you take all that money that you plan to lose and you put it in your pocket and you play with the house's money. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, what he could have done is put that eight G's away. Okay, that's going to Richie. And if he wanted to gamble on the house money... So be it, but to be that far in after, it'd be interesting to see what the whole length of that game was. Like you talked about Netflix shows. To the next, I thought yeah. a great show would be the the, the executive game, game and Ooh, just a, a series of uh, different players at Tony's card games. He refuses to admit that he lost. They literally, he literally says, "Do you want to admit that you lost?" And he says, "No." Which I thought was just so well, crazy. Well, close the lights. That's a, a term. East Coast term for just turning off the lights. Mm-hmm. I've never heard it in the term of a close. card game. Close the game. Close yeah. the game. Oh, close the game. Um, also, a lot of prick talk at that table. There's a penal doctor. Prick, there's a prick doctor. Who also, if you look More it up, talking. if you looked it up on him, he does mob surgeries. Off the record mob, like mob injury surgeries. That's why he's at the game. He's the mob doc. So Autopsy's take on on David was that it was his sense of emasculation that drives him to gamble. But again, like, I, I'm just not seeing these guys as emasculated men. They might be, there's a difference between emasculation and, like, a guy who's kind of, like, not happy with his life, like midlife crisis. I don't know if the two are synonymous or maybe they're related. With you on that because they're both successful businessmen in yeah. some, to some degree. He Already seemed like he had a, a nice house. He has a nice house and a sporting goods store he's able to afford a sport utility vehicle for his son and they have a big long driveway which suggests income in in you know a mortgage totally but also maybe i don't know if this is moving ahead too much but we do learn like you know richie is basically controlled by janice in some regards and she just complains about you know she gives it to him and later we learn david's wife owns the sporting goods store so, and his wife, which is why I love that actress, she's a hard ass. Like, and Artie's wife, Charmaine, is mm. kind of this, like, you know, Charmaine's going to have my balls on the menu. I got to leave. So in some way, they are emasculated by their wives, which is basically, like, everyone complains that their wife really runs the pants or runs the household. 
And in some regards, I think that's the only thing they all have in common. Like, the wives are all bitching and like, what are you doing down there? Like, don't worry, why are you in the pot of bing? What are you doing? So that's the only way I could make some sort of reference to them being emasculated. And to me, it's from their their wives, not from the other guys. You asked this question last week at the end of the episode about like, who runs the family? Is mm-hmm. it a woman? Um, or two weeks ago. And uh, in many respects, I thought about it after the fact, and in many respects, Carmela does run Tony. You know, he does what he does, but she kind of sways his decision-making in terms of certain things that, he, that he's involved in. Um, Is that emasculating, though, if you're listening to your wife? No, I don't, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Because I listen, I mean, look, I think it's prudent to listen to your wife. I think you're ha- happy wife, happy life. But don't you guys rip on each other like, oh, you're whipped, or like, oh, like, you know, he's got to run home to his wife, like things like that. Because you see that, you know, where they make fun of Artie a bit. And later we learn Dave Scatino's wife is pretty hardcore, too. And she's like, you know, my husband's a gambler. Like, she's pretty hardcore, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think everyone's free to bust everyone's balls about that. But then they all go home to their own version of that. And they listen to their... Yeah. Yeah, whether you're married or not, like, it's a... A woman boss? In America. You know that? Um, okay, so let's go to the executive game. Uh, a couple of key moments. Junior gives us the backstory of this game that he and Johnny Boy ran in their heyday. Uh, there's a lot of new characters. Um, and one, this is the only time we see some of these people, but there's Sunshine, who is played by the actor and director and screenwriter Paul Mazursky, who is a fascinating individual, nominated for five Academy Awards. He acted in Stanley Kubrick's first feature film, Fear and Desire, in 1953. He was also in Carlito's Way, which is a movie that John and Justin told me about that I still haven't seen, but need to see. Yeah, I need to see it. Um, I also haven't seen Serpico. Uh, Yeah, I know. I'm probably going to get some heat Stop for that. Stop watching Castaway. <laughs> Both of you. You have homework for next week. So which one do I watch first? Serpico or... Uh, or Carlito's Way. Way. Well, they both die at the end. I just want to let okay. you know that. But uh, Carlito's Way, probably. Okay. Um, he was also in five episodes of Curbed, uh, season four. Sadly, he passed away. I was going to... I looked him up to try to reach out to him to see if we could get, sit, get a sit down. Uh, he passed away in 2014. So rest in peace, Paul Mazursky, uh, the dealer of the executive game. Uh, we see we, him later in future games. Too. Yeah, a couple yeah. of times. Um, also, we are introduced to Frank Sinatra Jr., uh, him played by himself, uh, the chair boy of the board. I don't know too much about Frank Sinatra Jr., like his career, but he sang too, correct? He was a crooner. Is that the appropriate term? Yes. I remember what I was going to ask you earlier now, so I'm just going to rewind. What is your vocal range? Are you a soprano? I am, uh, I would say I'm an alto. Okay. But if I'd like to toot my own horn, I have a pretty high register if I want to. Is soprano the highest register? There's a even high, there's an even higher one. I forget what it's called, but it's like a canter alt soprano. There's like a really high Mariah one. Carey? Yeah. Is Mariah Carey a soprano but or that's is she like the a, high? It's, it's, it's more, if I'm singing choral music or opera, you would use those terms. Like a mezzo soprano is like, I'd probably be a mezzo-soprano. So it's like uh, tenor, alto, mezzo-soprano, soprano. soprano. Mm. And then there's a higher one. But if I'm singing pop music or R&B, it's more based on, like, what range do you have? So, like, how high, how many octaves do you have? And Mariah Carey has, like, a three-octave range. So she can sing 
basically a tenor, an alto, and a soprano, and then she has a whistle tone, which is even higher. How many octave ranges are on a piano, 88 keys? Is that five octave ranges? Oh, God, I don't know. There's, okay. I'll find out for us. Um, so you mentioned choral music. I want to just jump. This is something that I had in the in the last call, but I'm going to just jump to it now because it makes sense. So Meadows auditioning for their uh, school performance, and there's this girl, classmate, Gudrun, uh, who sings a song that was composed by Franz Schubert, who, I hope I said that right. Schubert or Schubert? I produce a, class, that, a classical yeah. music podcast, so I'm, my host is probably going to crush me for this. But Discogs ranks him as the seventh greatest composer of all time. The order for the top ten is Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Wagner, yeah. Hayden, Brahms, Schubert. Schubert? I Yes, it's probably Schubert? that, but people know him. It's like, you know, you would Schubert. say like Beethoven. Right. Like Sch- Schubert, Schumann, Scho- yeah. Chopin, Handel, or Handel, Andel, Handel. and then Tchaikovsky. Yes. Naya. Yes. Have you ever sung or tried to sing Gudrun's song? Well, it's interesting. I come from a lineage of opera singers and jazz musicians. So my grandmother was an Italian opera singer in Italy. And then um, my aunt went to Juilliard for opera, and I took two months of opera lessons and quit because it is so hard. And it's it's very hard. But you start... And Schubert is an amazing, Schubert, whatever you want to call him. He, him, Bach, and like um, Mozart, those are the very traditional opera composers. And so when you start, which is like, she's in high school, this girl, Gudrun, she would be singing a Schubert because they're a little bit easier than, say, like a Rachmaninoff or like a, another. There's composers that are a little bit more simpler. Like Chopin is considered easy. Chopin is considered hard, but I don't know if he wrote any operas no uh, not to my knowledge at least my limited knowledge was Gudrun a good singer she's not bad good vibrato um we're also introduced to uh, a Dr. Freed as Naya pointed out he's the erectile dysfunction doctor who also performs mob related surgeries he's played by the actor Louis Stadlin his film credits include Portnoy's Complaint which I have seen Serpico The Verdict and The Imposters. Uh, so highly decorated actors and uh, theater performers on, in these scenes where if you didn't know, if you didn't know where to look, you would just assume they were just, you know, regular guys. You think guys like that, because I know um, Sinatra Jr. goes, I'll settle up with you next game. Do they, they're just doing this for fun, it seems like. They're just, they have a tab. They're like, okay, yeah. is it, you're going to fly me in, I'm going to play some poker, and then I'm not going to worry about giving you money or you giving me money until next time we play it was strange yeah well I, yeah settling up you, you would never you would never expect to, like Naya you said to you no one wants to chase anybody to get paid but I think there's a couple of people the executive game that you make concessions for it's something that I'm going to speak to in just a minute here Tony seemed nervous he didn't seem like a boss uh, it, it was almost like he was auditioning to run the executive game the way that he was ordering the piss boys around that he asked them to go get a get the Macanudos, they were arms reach away from Tony when he asked him to do that. It just felt like he was kind of like tense. I don't know if that was acting or if that was intentional. And then the way he checked in on how they were doing, like Christopher has to come in and tell him how much they're up. Any thoughts on that? Like, is Tony nervous? Is he trying to make it perfect? He Does he feel inadequate in some way? In the morning after when they're counting how much they made and he talks about it, he's like, man, the executive game. So you, you gathered that these guys had 
really looked up to this particular game and whoever was in charge of it and who would have thought we'd be running this thing and there was just particular detail to make sure that it went smoothly and that guys like Richie wouldn't come in and scare people out or that they'd have enough food and things of that nature. So I think he just wanted it to be successful in his first run of this. I agree. I think he wanted to be a good host. Tony thinks his dad left them with shit. Junior says, My brother Johnny was one keen motherfucker. Oh, yeah. That's why he left us with chichi beans. You don't know what you're talking about. Your father left Livia with a fucking package that could choke a fucking elephant. I got to tell you, she's like a woman with a Virginia ham under her arm, crying a blues because she has no bread. Please. They don't make him like Johnny. Do you guys think he's keeping appearances? Or is there something to what he's saying? Live in the present. Don't go ahead. Like, based on what we know now, is he saying that to make his brother look good? Or is there some truth to that? I think he's exaggerating a little bit. I think Livia would have a nicer house, right? Isn't it? Yeah. That for me is the, that for me is the barometer. Like, what is she driving and what does her house look like? That's all you need to know. But back then, I feel like no one was like no one was really flexing that same the same way. It was more about like having a good piece of meat, driving a nice car, you know, like being able to get your hair done and go out to dinner was like a luxury for people. At least that's what I think. I don't know. I think there's no reason for Junior to flex and and tell that story. And I I believe it's entirely true. And I think. Livia is a product of the Depression, and children of the Depression didn't flaunt their money. They saved it, and they put it in, in between books and in trunks. Uh, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Janice later is looking for that in the house. Right. Well, it becomes, well, Tony's eyes bulge out of his head when, when Junior says that. Junior also mentions in, the, in that scene to, when they're together that, uh, that, that there was a brother, Eckley, Hercules. He was my younger brother. He was between me and your father in age. His name was Eckley. Actually, Hercules. Hercules. Named after my grandfather. Junior mentions George Raft when talking about Eckley. He was an actor during the 30s and 40s who portrayed mobsters. Any thoughts on Hercules? I mean, to me, it just more relates back to the conversation between Tony and Melfi about playing a victim, or is it now acceptable that you need mental health because it runs in your family? Just more that versus that there's actually another uncle. Well, this, this uncle is going to be alive in the prequel. Think we'll meet him? Who Who is... Who is... Who is Hercules? Who is Hercules? Who plays Hercules? That's tough. Well, who looks like John Raft? George Raft. George Raft. And that guy's a, an old guy that... Played in gangster movies. Gangster movies during the 30s and 40s. Um, Some stylistic and technical observations while you guys think on that. Based on the scene with Furio talking to Titleman's son, uh, whom I reached out to, by the way. He's an attorney in Washington, D.C. He was in five episodes. Based on the scene with Furio talking to Titleman's son, the game is being hosted at Titleman's motel, right? That's, That's where they are. Tony. Okay, so Tony knew that sweeping up the stuff under Silvio would set him off, right? Was Tony doing Sylvie, it on, yeah, was yes. Tony doing it on purpose to N- fuck with Silvio? No, no, I think it goes back to him wanting to make sure that everything was in order and he didn't want you know any air of I mean, they're not at the Taj Mahal, so I had to make it look as nice as possible. See, and I would be with you, but but he I starts see, laughing. I see him I see yeah. him crack a smile. Yeah, that's true. 
so so I'm, here's this is the Vic Reach, okay? He's pissed at the Bevel. He's pissed, I call him the Bevelacqua brothers. I need to stop doing that. We could call him that. Chippendale. Who cares Fuck about it. them? Okay. Yeah. He's pissed about Chippendale rushing him at the strike at the at the protest that they staged, and so this is his way of sticking it to them, and like really, really, really getting getting them to see if they kind of have a melting point. That was my takeaway. No, I think it's more because we we learned that Silvio's f- crazy when right. he gambles. Christopher warns yeah, them. He warns them. So I I personally think he's Tony's just using them to fuck with Silvio for fun because it's entertaining. And they've been sitting there for how fucking long? Like six at, eight hours. Yeah. At yeah. some point, he's like, "Why don't you go sweep that cheese over there? Yeah. Like, I want to watch watch this blow up." And Christopher specifically talks about keeping it clean. Yeah. And then I would believe your point on it, Vic, but he doesn't remember Matt's name even. So why would he... That's true. If he doesn't remember who he is, why would he care yeah. about yeah. sticking to him for... It's a good point. He could also be doing that to break balls. He could be breaking balls by not... When you when you call somebody by their not name, that's breaking balls. That leads to one more question about the executive game for me. And I noticed um, when they're, they're sitting around and they were talking about how much money they made, and Silvio mentions, like, two Gs of that is me. Were they in on the game? Like, were Polly and Silvio just playing with money just to keep things moving and to keep uh, ships moving around? And ultimately, they just knew, we're just going to get a piece of whatever's made after. But they're not actually gambling with their money. They're gambling with the house's money? Yeah, I mean, Silvio says two, but you know he played with more than two Gs in that game. That's a good question. That is a really good question. Because they're all in on the take together. That's the we jig, need then. Some gamblers you know, like you're playing with all these guys, but two of the wise guys that happen to just be sitting there and talking about. I how much bet money they're playing with their own money. They put some of their skin in the game. Yeah, that's some what I of would it. Guess. But they get to take equity in the whole pie. They buy in. Yeah, yeah. That that, that would make the most sense because Tony's a principled guy. He's not going to let them play with yeah. his money. You're not going to touch his money. Just in case anyone wants to know, provolone cheese is an aged, stretched, cured cheese originated near Vesuvius. <laughs> I have to note, too, that that particular scene has been morphed into 10 to 15-plus memes in different ways. The card game. Yeah, oh, well, the, the sister's crotch and the provolone, and it's I think it's up there with one of the most uh, memorable scenes for fans that just love the humor of the show. Yeah. And it's Stephen Van Zandt's best moment in the entire show. Wow, that's your contention. Yep. Okay. Large cheese, provolone. Um, so, Melfi, topic three. Some key moments to set everything up. Melfi engages Tony with a significant amount of more confidence than normal. Uh, she takes the gloves off a little bit. Thoughts on that? What's her game plan like with this new round of sessions? Where did she? Where did? Where did? The, where is this coming from? I mean, it was interesting watching this again, especially coming from the episode we did last, um, the out of out of the woods one. That one, because um, to me. I feel like now she's stuck in a way. Like she she was dealing with knowing if she should take him back or not and that whole worry. And now I feel like we're going to start to see her become more and more like frustrated and kind of turn more into Tony in a way. And it's crazy because she keeps prying him and like almost like what you asked in your notes to me, like do women, you know, ask how you're feeling but then not, like the answer which is yes but also i don't know she has this kind of like sassy 
attitude about him because I think now she's stuck treating him. And in some regards, I think she's going to realize she regrets this. She's not stuck, though. She she wanted this. I know, but I feel like she's—it's not—I don't know. I don't know. I'm with you. She feels frustrated. Yeah. And now she's trying some probably unprofessional angles or just— Because her dream of him dying and the song— out of the woods playing would be like she's out she doesn't have to deal with it anymore in a way it was how i think now about that in the sense and now she's has to treat him and because it's the right thing to do but in some way she's stuck oh so she's out of the woods she would be out of the woods if, Tony's dead. if he was dead so now she has to treat him and you know she's like you know what do you want to accomplish here what do you what do you want to achieve here you but know? but but in that show we know that there's no place like home and uh tony's home yeah. She does keep asking him, which I do like, and that is what women do to men, in my opinion. Because, like, y'all will try to say what you feel, and then I'll be like, yeah, but I'll keep egging you on. And then he finally says, okay, sometimes I resent you for making me feel like a victim. So she got it out of him officially, like, finally. Like, let's go back to smashing my face. And he's like, but why? Like, why, why? She's like, because I know there's some, what, why? Why do you want to smash my face? It's because you make me feel like a victim. So she had to drag it, like, because guys just don't know how to just say it all the way, right? They don't know how to, they beat around the bush? They just, they don't come out right with it. I choose not to tell you how I feel about this. (laughs) I'll Um, keep asking you. (laughs) One of the takeaways that I got from her, her sass, or I guess confidence, is that she admitted to Elliot that going back to him would be very therapeutic. So this is a form of her therapy. She's flexing a little bit because it actually feels good. And she can kind of like spar with him as opposed to be be like the sponge to the douchebags. As opposed to when the douchebags come to her and cry, she has to absorb it all. But with Tony, she can let stuff rebound a little bit. Yeah, I mean, he's probably a more interesting patient than most. You I've know? been saying that from the beginning. More than the douchebags that go in and out. But the conversation with, you know, the mental health and the, the uncle, I thought that was interesting. And that's when you see her again being a therapist. Like, now is it more acceptable that you're here? And, like, how do you feel it about It totally that? validates his yeah. coming to therapy because it is genetic and it mm-hmm. is, you know, congenital. The symbolism here is that violence is being projected onto Melfi. We saw it last season, and he viscerally describes that he wants to turn her into hamburger meat. Why, why, why? She's the window to all of his emotions. And that's healthy, but it's also painful. And there's some resentment there, I think. If it, Like, man, you're the person that brings out all of these feelings. I really just want to punch my feelings in the face. Does she know him better than he knows himself? Yes. On a subconscious level and a clinical side, I think she's got a, a general. Because idea she goes, of him. yeah. Because even when she, when you know, she's like, your mother made it impossible. She starts listing the reasons why it's okay. He's literally here. You know, like you would be here because your childhood was weird. Like she lists the things that she knows that verifies him coming to therapy. I guess the reference in this episode that bothers me a little bit is this word douchebags okay tony doesn't like douchebags he doesn't like happy wanderers but i started thinking about it and by tony's definition aren't paulie chrissy artie davy vin jr aren't they all douchebags and then extending that a little bit farther who is the model strong silent type in tony's life 
Who is the who is the Gary Cooper of the show? It was his father. It was the myth of his father. The myth of his father. I mean, I know it's a little deep for Saturday no, morning. No, but I mean to me, he's surrounded by douchebags. There are no. He is strong. a douchebag. Thank you. I didn't want to go there. <laughs> I mean, oh. I, uh, oh. the, well, that's the whole struggle because he's jealous of a happy wanderer because he's has a clear head. And in some regards, that's why he wants to, like, fuck up his day. And it's, like, the kind of comparison to, like, the being woke thing. Like, are you aware of everything and all the bad shit that could happen to you? In my opinion, and that's why in this episode, everyone just wants to get what they want. Like, everyone wants to be happy. They want to get paid. Like, Meadow wants the solo. Janice wants... Like, everybody wants something out of this. And, like, the happy wanderers are just, like, life is so good. So, to me, he's jealous but also wants that peace of mind so and yes i think they're all happy wanderers and douchebags because to me that's kind of the same thing it's just an awareness i just find it like it's just very hypocritical and sort of it's just troubling like um anyway some uh this uh, stylistic and technical observation that i keep coming back to with this melfi thing um i think i even posted about it as their sessions progress, the first time they're back together a few episodes ago, the camera angle shows them as almost being very distant and, like, very far away. Like, she's on one corner of the room and he's on the other cor- corner of the room, and it's all about perception. But as their sessions progress, uh, the camera angle portrays an increased closeness between them. And I really found that interesting. Um, I thought it was a very creative way to visually show to visually show their connection and how sometimes when you... Uh, are reunited with somebody or you've been away from them for a while, it kind of takes a little bit of time before you move closer. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And um, That's a good observation. As I know what you pointed out when Tony was shopping for other therapists, the chair the position was different. an interesting dynamic. Yeah. We should get Dr. Justin on the phone and talk about if there's anything to How you set the, up the room. situation of a room when you're you're meeting. When you uh, when he's sitting and she says something and he goes, ah, and he turns his head back, his legs are spread wide open and he's basically just open and comfortable with her. Whereas when he was with the bolo tie therapist, he was he was reserved and he was a little more buttoned up. And again, this is they have a relationship and the camera the camera gave you what the what dialogue couldn't. And I love that. Okay, we're talking Meadow. The thing I want to get at with you guys on Meadow is that she admonishes her dad to his face, but defends him in public. And we've been looking for these Meadow moments because, again, a big part of the storyline in the show is Tony's kids and Tony's family, and they really haven't had opportunities to shine yet, partially because they're young. We get Meadow in college, in the college episode. But here, she shows a little bit of a vocal range, if you will. Yeah, I... I attributed it to, we all have opinions about certain things, but when we're given direct experience or it hits too close to home, we might change that opinion. And on the surface, I think the rules apply. And guy, grown man, made a wager. He lost and he owes money. But when it's now her friend in high school is giving up her, giving up his car for her because of a debt, like it, you might have a different perception of totally. the rules on that. The theme here is complicity, right? Carmela and Meadow are a part of this criminal enterprise They because they allow it, because they live in it. And Tony has that great line that I mentioned, which is kind of the clincher for me on his Emmy Award a performance for the show, is... I owed me money, and he did the right thing, and he offered that car up as partial payment. Yeah, right. You see this? You see this is you talking. 
I just hope you know his wife is very close to the brother-in-law of a provost at Georgetown. The who? Oh, great. Go ahead. You want to act taller than now? You go right ahead, but I'm not giving it back. I'm going to take that car, I'm going to sell it to pussy, and then I'm going to buy clothes and food and shoes and CD players and all the rest of the shit that I've been buying since the day you were born. Everything this family has comes from the work I do. All right, Tony, that's enough. A grown man made a wager. He lost. He made another one. He lost again. End of story. So take that high moral ground and go sleep in a fucking bus station if you want. But my question is, what are her options? Yeah, she there's she doesn't allow it. She she was born into it. Right. It's like the birth lottery thing. You don't choose where you're born. Like, um, I don't think that she's necessarily complicit. I just yeah. feel like it's, uh, Carmela, yes, but the children are not complicit in any way. It, but but there's this talk on Reddit. There's this talk in in the in the community on Facebook and everything that she uses. And I even think autopsy mentions it too. That she uses his station in life to her advantage over and over again and without giving anything away does she in your like just is like a yes or no like i don't actually see that i think i think she leads a very straight and narrow life but she does protect her dad what do you guys think i mean i think she's just embarrassed i think meadow's embarrassed about the situation and humiliated and i mean carmela is more upset because i hope you know that they know someone at stanford like she's more worried that it's going to mess up meadow's getting into college, this whole situation, not even that, like, it's Meadows' friend's car. And and like you said, Tony's just trying to fill a debt. But I do think it, it you know, later we see people tap Tony for donations and stuff. So I think it goes both ways. Like, she she gets good some good stuff because her dad's Tony Soprano, but also it has a negative connotation, too, because she's, you know, Tony Soprano's daughter. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it did. Totally. I think this is just the seed of you starting to realize she doesn't always enjoy being Tony Soprano's daughter, you know, because even she's like, it's not my fault. Like she says to her friend, like, it's not my fault. Like my dad, you know, I had nothing to do with this. And, you know, Eric blames her like, fuck you and fuck your father. So it kind of loops her in with her dad. So by she's guilty by association, which I feel like is the first time you see her feel so affected by that. But at the same time, her dad got her the solo. Yeah. So it's like... Unintentionally. Yeah, it's this kind of like funny irony, you know? You get what you want, but maybe not the way you want it. But, well, that's a lucky break. I wonder what happened. (laughs) How about the irony of My Heart Will Go On? Yeah, I mean, what a stupid song She had that ace in the hole, just... Well, I can sing this on backup. Yeah, she, hey, well, that's she, a tough she, song to she, sing, by the way. Yeah, but I mean, when you go out for a cabaret and you put check solo, you know, she wanted a solo. Who's got a bigger octave range, Mariah or Celine Dion? S- mm, Mariah Carey has a bigger range, but I'm a huge... Uh, Celine Dion has a pretty killer voice, too. But that line even Carmela says, that's a lucky break, I wonder what happened, is such a play on this whole, like luck gambling thing for me. I was just like, God, David Chase, what an asshole. <laughs> so mean. Is that really a thing that, like, to get into college, they're going to look at, well... Yes. She did a duo 100%. or versus a solo? 100%. The, wow. Like, the arts. That's why even Eric is doing this, because he's low on his arts, his art credits. Final round. The This little new, fun little thing we're doing as our ship sails away farther and farther from Justin. 
what most rewatchable scene? What do you guys got? I mean, the Richie one is so good in the sports store. I love that one. I have the the scene when Tony uh, goes to the sports store and beats him up. That's most rewatchable. Yeah, the Tequila Sunrise. Yeah, A plus performance for you, Tony. Yeah, in and, part and Patrick too. Oh, it was great. In part, uh, also because Michael Rapaport did an interview with Robert Patrick. And there was a discussion specifically about this scene uh, that he had been called in to play this part uh, the day before actually shooting. They'd done a reading and uh, it was suggested to uh, Robert that he say something to the effect of bring your A-game tomorrow to James Gandolfini. And what ensued was this amazing impromptu one-cut scene that, that Tony Soprano puts on. I can't give it justice, so the, the interview is probably the best. Um, just a little glimpse into the the method behind playing such a angry character. The most rewatchable scene for me was basically all the Melfi sessions yeah, in a, in a, in a capsule. Too. They were very enjoyable. I loved her. I loved her back and forth. I loved her confidence. Uh, favorite scene. Um, my favorite scene was when Richie comes to collect what he's owed and he calls his little setback a stutter step. Did you guys have a favorite scene that was different from the most rewatchable? I mean, I loved the cheese. The provolone is just still so... The, the that meltdown. The yeah. That meltdown is great. Least favorite scene? Um, I don't mind... I don't need the scene with Polly and the cop. I, I, okay. get, why, I get why we see it. Daddy boy. How's your family? Oh, not bad, Polly. You know, we had to move my father to another hey. old folks home. I got my own fucking problems. <laughs> you're fucking hard on you. How many times are you gonna fall for that, huh? Or, or, I mean, I guess we do need to see Meadow talk to her music teacher, but I, I more loved that teacher's outfit. That's very gonna be like inspiration for my second album cover. Meadow's music teacher's outfit. Look, oh. check it out next time. It's like a black and white blazer with like a brooch of a treble clef. It's like adorable. <laughs> Shout out soprano style. Mm-hmm. Uh, my least favorite scene was Eric playing the bass. That's mine. <laughs> that was yours? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, oh it's, yeah. That's it's really bad, man. It was so bad. Come on now. Like, I'm t- I'm, I, I'll, I'll tell you what. I, I believe that David Chase took a piss break and he didn't see that part go in. And after the fact, he's probably like, WTF. Well, Eric isn't good in the arts. That's why he's doing this song. So he's supposed to be awful. It's the setup for finding out about... Barb's husband's father dying, but yeah, it's it painful. Yeah, it's painful. Biggest nitpick uh, for me, it was Eckley. I feel like we got left dangling there. So I, I just kind of like I wanted to know more about him. I also felt like Junior felt a little guilty when talking about Eckley. He kind of looked out the window into the distance saying like maybe he could have done something more for him. Um, But again, these are the things, these are the breadcrumbs that David Chase places in front of us and then he just walks away from them while we all linger at the, like the bears that are fighting over a piece of salmon that they caught. Yeah. Um, Did you guys have any uh, nitpicks? It's my thing like I had last week with the another ambiguous thing that I love and hate. Like, why tell us there's a bunch of money hidden somewhere and we're probably never going to find out if there is or not. And you're like, yeah. oh. What about you? I think it would be that they drop these huge bits of information so casually and then it's like, what? Yeah. Like, you know, it was the same, like, Hesh just was like, just like your father. It's like, what? Yeah. 
What are yeah. you talking about? You know, and well, it's Tony, funny that's how they deliver them to us. Like they deliver them like big UPS packages. There's another packages. member of the family we don't know. Yeah. You know, so yeah, they leave it right in front of your doorstep, so you have to physically lift it up and move it to get out of the way. Um, favorite quote. I had two. Go. I liked no help. Mysteries abound. The dealer and like just fucking deal. And then the other one was Chrissy in the fish shop. Is it fishy? And the guy goes, it's fish. I love that because I know because we all know exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. That was those were my favorite. I like the. Uh, I tried to find an obscure one, and uh, Johnny Sack has a line about Polly and his hand. He's like, Polly's got shit as usual, or whatever it was. It was just very. Mine was the uh, Tony to Melfi when she mentions Carlos Castaneda. Carlos Castaneda said. Live every moment as if it were your last dance on earth. Who the fuck listens to prize fighters? Ali, maybe. He had a little wisdom. I just love that so much. I was dead when I heard that. Because Castaneda, as you may or may not know, is was an author and scholar right here at UCLA, actually. He got his PhD at UCLA, lived and spent the last part of his life in Westwood. Author of 12 books that have sold more than 28 million copies worldwide. And he popularized this mind and body discipline called tensegrity. Have mm, you heard of that? No. It has roots in shamanism, which is the practice of reaching altered states of consciousness to interact with the spirit world. Which makes sense for David Chase because he loves a little Buddhism, spiritual bullshit. Exactly. Well, and then also the we're going to, this altered states of consciousness is going to stay with us for the rest of the show, especially into season six with Tony. So the Netflix series spinoffs. I had two. I had the Eric Scatino 20-year-later story. Yikes. Does that work? I think we canceled that episode. Yes, canceled that, that series. <laughs> I don't want to see that episode of Intervention. What about the Davy Scatino origin story? I would like to see him more where he moves, where he goes. Like, After? Yeah. Like, so I sequel. know where he goes. I know where he ends up, but I'm not going to give it away. But I want to see him there. The David Scatino aftermath. Yeah. Did you see any other Netflix series that could be spinoffs out of this episode? Uh, yeah. I have a, a remake on Three's Company with Richie, Livia, and Janice. Oh, my God. That's, an, <laughs> That's entirely a, a short series leading up to his future. And uh, only includes Livia as, like, the voice upstairs that we never see. But we use so sound bites from the original show. And it's just the interactions in the living room between Richie and Janice. I liked your idea of the executive game show too. That one, that's I would a watch. great title. That's, that's a great good. title. That's a big one. That would be a good one. That I think just that would have a lot of legs. Where mm-hmm. the Three's Company is just a single series. Oh yeah, just or a, a single season. The executive game could be every episode is like a card game. And actually, and it's, just it's guys, basically celebrity poker. It's just, just guys shooting them. the shit. It is mm-hmm. celebrity poker. Could be a really good podcast too, because you don't need visuals for the executive game. You could just have a bunch of people breaking balls. Do you see their cards when you watch poker on TV? You do. Oh, you do. Because why the, why, the, why am I watching people There's just play camera. poker? It's, the, it's for the banter. It's for the tension. It's for the poker faces. Are there announcers? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a big event. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Any lessons learned from this episode? Don't gamble. Don't gamble. <laughs> yeah. And don't off-road it. Don't off-road. No off-roading. Or go to reasonable places to gamble. Last call. I had a couple of things, like random things. I didn't know where to like ni- nicely box them in for topics. But everything's a scam in this, in this life of theirs, this thing of ours, right? Everything's a scam. Everything's a con. The matchbox, Christopher, 
he uses the expression nickel and diming, but then he nickel and dimes the fishing, the, the, the fish salesman. Uh, I, Autopsy alluded to this as well. They're going to do like a high stakes poker game, but he can't pay full freight for fish. And it just, it just speaks so much to like everything is fair game in terms of like ripoffs and scams. The fish man, he was played yeah. by the actor. Felix Solis, Solis. I don't know who he is, but he's in a few other episodes. And he's in a bunch of other stuff, too. He's been in The West Wing. Really? Been in Oz, Law & Order, Damages, over 18 films, numerous Broadway productions, and he's even received a letter of admiration and thanks from Al Pacino himself for one of his performances. Wow. wow. There was a song, uh, the Stone Temple pilot song, when Eric Scatino's driving up to pick up Meadow. It was down. It was one of their deeper cuts. Were you Stone Temple Pilots fan? We're, now that I know that we're close in age... Stone Temple Pilots growing yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, I was digging it. I like that one song. So they came of age during the grunge era, uh, but they were originally from San Diego. They were kind of this counter-grunge band. Scott Weiland as a frontman. Thoughts on his frontman status, Naya? I think he's cute. Rest in peace, Scott Weiland. I'm, I'm an STP guy. My favorite STP song was Big Empty off the Crow soundtrack. Interstate Love Song. That's a good one. I think it's a great name for a song. It's a great it title, right? Interstate Love Song. Uh, all right, my STP the conversation sidebar went dead on arrival. Um, I just had, I wanted to mention them because that, that was like that was like a direct reference to my my youth. Finally, Naya, you touched on um, Miss Saigon. Meadow and Erica rehearsing a song from Miss Saigon, which, uh, as you may or may not know, is a Broadway musical from the guys who brought us Les Mis. Really? Yeah, oh, the I guys behind that. Les Mis or the guys behind Miss Saigon. One of my dorky favorites. It's based on the opera Madame Butterfly. Which, Which is my know. favorite opera. It is your favorite opera. Um, and the storylines essentially are both of them are it's an Asian woman being abandoned by her American lover. Yeah, is that it's pretty awful, accurate? Yes. Um, have you seen it performed live? Mm-hmm. It's beautiful and so tragic. Does yeah. she die at the end? Yes. She kills herself. Um, I just want to say finally, I thoroughly enjoyed this episode. Frank Renzulli, the writer, he delivers jabs of zingers and he's a special. One one of uh, he's he's a starting point guard for for uh, for David Chase in my opinion. I guess for me, my final take was they play the Happy Wanderer song at the end, which I thought was a weird time to play that. Do you think, for, the, think the fade was weird? I thought the fade was weird because to me, this episode. I mean, I guess it makes sense. It's like everybody's just going about their business, but there's this frustration with everyone. And I was trying to think about: Did anyone get what they want? And I think the only person that did was Meadow. Yeah. She got her college admission. She got her solo. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, nobody got paid yet. They got the executive game, I guess. So that's another win. Like, I was, because to me, this is, did everybody get what they want? Everybody wants, you know, they want more from life. They don't want to just wander around or, like, answers and stuff. Well, the guys got, they, 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 got were, up, they were up big. Yeah. They got 80 boxes of ZD. So the guys got, the guys were enriched. Meadow Took her, took her moral high ground all the way to yeah. college ex- acceptance letters that'll be coming. And then here's the, like, the irony, because the last thing is Carmela says, that's a lucky break. Yeah. But it's not lucky at all. And they got the executive game because Junior doesn't run it anymore. So is it luck? Was it luck? Or no? Nothing was luck. I don't know, Because yeah. Tony got the game because Junior can't run it now, right? Was that lucky? That, that's kind of lucky. That's kind of lucky. Yeah. I just thought that was such a good, and the good fact well-written that, line. Yeah, it was a great line. Uh, well, she also is kind of oblivious. She doesn't oh, yeah. know what happened between him and David Scatino. What, what choice words Or does she know? Write. She must know something if he's pulling up in Eric Scatino's car. 
To um, Naya's point about the ending being a little strange, I think it had a lot to do with a lot of stuff was unresolved. But that's something the show does. They'll start planning little stories, and they don't necessarily start or end in an episode. They may happen in the middle and finish later on in two episodes later, which is is nice um, because that's the one thing I despise sometimes about network television is we have a problem, and in 50 minutes we're going to solve it, and everyone's going to be happy. See you next week when we do it all over again. And, yeah. And this, uh, even this episode in particular, it gives you two different moments of kernels of uh, storylines that are going to really progress later on. One is, I think Naya mentioned it when uh, Janice and uh, Richie are on the way home, and she eggs him on about the 50K is less than what a mailman makes. It's interesting that the 50K is similar to the 50K that's, owed and and this comparison of money but it it brings the seed of dissension from Richie and then the other one is um, the comment from Chippendale about being piss boys and this is the growing dissension that they have with Christopher that we're going to see later so all in all it was a really pivotal episode to, yeah. to do some things, establish some new characters and, and keep us on this wild ride that is the Sopranos How tense was that scene in the car? when Richie's driving and he keeps looking over at her, I f- you feel like there's going to be an accident. It's like a typical classic cue in TV or movies, accident or swerve off the road. But such a, like, Janice was amazing. Totally. The way she, like, just, you know, and then Olivia being in the background. Was she asleep? She looked like she was fake crying still. Yeah. Just a great scene. I'm glad we got that. I, f- I forgot yeah. that wasn't a talking point that we had. And also it ends on Gudrun solo because she's the rightful solo. She was the one that deserved the solo. She, she hadn't got had it. one. And that's why, I, that's why I, now I actually feel like I answered my own question because I was like, wow, what is, why is this ending so, why didn't we see Meadow solo? But because she was the one that really deserved it because she hasn't had one in four years. Here's a, here's a reach. Maybe we can end on this. So I was always bothered. I'm a perfectionist audio-wise, like, you know, like fade-ins, fade-outs, mm-hmm. cross-fades and all that. I thought that her solo fading into the Happy Wanderer song was a little abrupt. It was really abrupt. Thank you for catching that. But here is a rationale, okay? As soon as Tony realized that it was someone other than Meadow, it's, we're, we're, we're witnessing the show through his eyes and through his ears. He, he, he tunes the fuck out. And it cuts to the happy wanderer playing in his head until, until, and he's going to be living in that bubble space until Meadows on stage. Mm-hmm. Buy it? Yes. I can dig it. All right. We'll see you next week, guys. It's been real. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you, Naya. Thank you, guys. 